Philippians chapter 3. Now begin in verse 10 and read forward from there. Paul writes, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it on my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. So last week, as we were working our way through uh, chapter 3, we got to the point where Paul basically had talked a great deal about his accomplishments and using himself as an illustration. The idea being that if you could, by your own efforts, um, create enough good works or righteousness to be able to be considered godly or to have the kind of righteousness that God desires, he would have been the one because he, he far outpaced everyone around him. And we spent some time then, and we're going to read a thing in a moment again about Paul. But he was using it as an illustration to let them know that with all those credentials that he had, basically, he, he falls short, that it really got him nowhere when it came to what it is that God requires. So, he's got, so we need to understand that as a background as we get into uh, his desire to, I guess you would say, to motivate them and to try to help them to have the right kind of attitude when it comes to, to life they are to live. So on your notes there, just a few more things about Paul, just to kind of serve as background um, for who this guy was and, and you know, what, what kind of character he had and, and why he was the way he was. Again, Paul was a citizen of Tarsus. At the time he lived there, only families of wealth and reputation were allowed to retain their Tarsian citizenship. This throws a flood of light upon Paul's early life. He was born into a home of wealth and culture. His family were wealthy Jews living in one of the most progressive of all the Oriental cities. All this, Paul left to become a poor, itinerant missionary. But not only did he forfeit all this when he was saved, but his parents would have, would have had nothing to do with a son who had, in their estimation, dishonored them by becoming one of those hated and despised Christians. They had reared him in the lap of luxury, had sent him to, Jewish, to the Jewish school of theology in Jerusalem to sit at the feet of the great uh, Gamiel, and had given him an excellent training in Greek culture at the University of Tarsus, a Greek school of learning. But they had now cast him off. He was still forfeiting all that he had held dear. What for? He tells us that he may win Christ. So not only does Paul then have all these credentials in a sense where he can help these people understand that whatever he's accomplished in life is not going to, to do him any good in obtaining the righteousness of Christ, but he also wants to know that, he, that he's not complaining about that and that his attitude is that all these things, he really does consider them basically as rubbish. Or if we get into the Greek, it's just a pile of manure. That's its value. Uh, and what they say here about him, um, just a few more things to add to that. 
So because he came from a wealthy family, most believe that is how his family became Roman citizens, because they weren't Roman, they were Jewish. Uh, you could purchase uh, citizenship in Rome. And so most likely his family purchased citizenship, and so he was a Roman citizen, uh, because we know when you read through his uh, life and times in the book of Acts, there are times he kind of pulled out his citizenship card uh, when things got pretty hairy and uh, he needed a little extra help. Um, you know, it, it, people would then begin, the Romans anyway, would begin to treat him much differently. Um, he would have been uh, most believed that uh, he was married. We don't know if his wife died or if she left him. Now, even though it, during those times a woman was not allowed to divorce her husband, it is believed by some that there may have been a time that if your husband became a Christian because that was really viewed as being treasonous towards your people, your race, your religion, about everything, they would allow a woman, uh, that figure, uh, they, would, they would allow her to divorce her husband. There was another way they would do it to where it didn't look like she was the one instigating it, but basically she would have been allowed to leave him and, and be considered free to remarry because he would be considered dead to everyone. Um, so now that may have happened to him, we don't know. It could have been that she just died. But we do know that by the time uh, he is uh, an apostle, he's single. His wife's not in the picture. Um, so he had luxury, cut off from all of that, no inheritance. Uh, all the prestige he had with what he had before, he would be viewed by the Jews being a traitor. Remember, we've mentioned this before, uh, there was a time in his life when there was a group of men who basically took a vow that they would not eat or drink until he was dead. Um, now, I've never been in that situation, but imagine, let's say you go and you're, uh, uh, you, you've gone, let's say you've gone down to Florida for vacation, and let's say that you're at the store and you get into just some minor argument with some guy who's being a clown, and you think it's all over. And then you get word from someone that, well, actually that guy belongs to a bunch of bikers, and we heard them talking last night, and they've all taken a vow that they're not going to have another beer until you're dead. You probably will say to your wife, it's time to leave. Uh, <laughs> all right, because that's, <coughs> that's a pretty serious situation. So, that's, you know, so Paul's been through all that kind of stuff. And uh, again, Paul was, was willing to go through all of that. That really mattered very little to him because of this relationship that he had with Jesus Christ. So verse 11. Verse 11 is, is a verse that is a little difficult to understand to a degree, where he says um, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. So I, I put my notes in your notes, just so we can look at it. Um, the differences don't change anything, uh, but basically, here's the question. So is this a literal physical resurrection? Is that what he's talking about? Is he says he wants to attain this literal resurrection, or is he talking about a spiritual resurrection. What, what's he talking about? Well, number one, he might be expressing his hope that he will fully realize what it means in this life to experience what he's just stated, namely the resurrection, resurrection life of Christ being lived out fully through him. So in favor of that view is the preceding and following context where Paul says that he has not yet attained it, but he presses on. The other view is that Paul is referring to the future resurrection of the righteous at the return of Christ, when our mortal bodies will be transformed to the likeness of Christ's resurrection body, free from all sin. We will then share in his glory throughout eternity. 
if somehow we did not reflect uncertainty, since Paul was absolutely certain about the future resurrection, but rather the manner in which he would attain it, whether he may still be alive when Christ returned or he would die beforehand. Some think the problem with this view is that it doesn't seem to fit the context as well as the first one. But either way, whatever the verse means, the other verses make it clear that the process of sanctification is going to be completed. We will be like him, totally apart from sin, sharing in his glory throughout eternity. So my personal belief is I lean toward the first one, that he's expressing his hope that he will fully realize what it means in this life to experience the, the resurrection life of Christ being lived out fully. That, I lean towards that, but I don't think it matters um, if you fall on one side or the other because uh, neither one is heretical, to say the least. Um, because he's dealing with really the process of sanctification, progressive sanctification, and he wants to encourage them because he's doing this, remember, he's already mentioned to them that difficult times are going to come. You know, they face a little bit, but not much. More is coming. And what he's going through, um, he wants them to kind of be able to, to, to pick up his example. Remember, he's in prison. Things haven't gone all that well for him as far as his physical circumstances. But remember, his attitude to the whole thing is, he just doesn't care. He's just as happy as he can be. Whether he's in prison or he's not in prison, he's happy. He's doing the work of the Lord wherever he is. You know, the Lord answers his prayers in many incredible ways, yet he still finds himself chained to a guard 24 hours a day. Um, he's on his way to, you know, to, to basically have a trial in Rome because he's asked for one. As a Roman citizen, he can't be denied that right. It's going to lead to his death. He's going to be killed there. Um, and uh, and he's, just, he's just, you know, kind of going with the flow. Um, and it's, he's not, it's, this is not the power of positive thinking. Um, where he's just refusing to, to focus on the negative. That's not what he's doing. He's fully aware of some of the hardships he's going through, but he knows it's the will of God. He's doing the will of God, and he really is happy with that. Um, he's convinced there's life after death. He's going to be rewarded by, by the Lord. He can't wait to get there, um, and so he's good. And uh, his conviction is just, uh, in one sense, kind of insane compared to how fearful people can be about not only death, but how fearful people can be of just their circumstances. Um, the idea of him living his life in the safest way possible is not what he's doing. All right, and you know, we, and the reason why I say that because we do tend to, in our in the culture we have today, you may not really always think about it, but safety tends to be a real big deal. I'm not saying we shouldn't be concerned with safety, but it's overwhelming. I mean, you know, when the, all this had happened with the COVID lockdowns, all they had to say was, you know, there's some kind of danger, and people were just freaking out. Um, I remember, you know, when it comes to the whole mask thing, whatever you think about masks, it's fine. I have my opinion, have your opinion. I'm convinced from all the stuff I've read, the mask help and may be helping to prevent a bacterial infection does nothing for a virus. So it's just a waste of time to wear it. But I remember you had to wear it when you went to Kroger. So I would carry my mask, and then before I got to Kroger, I would put it on. And so this one day, I'm walking to the door. I have, I'm carrying my mask, and there was an, when I, now when I say older, that means she was older than me. There was an older lady that was there, and when I came walking up towards the where the carts are, for some reason she was standing outside the door, 
And when she saw me coming, she literally did. <laughs> and she wasn't like some kid playing a game. And then it's like, I'm looking at her, and she's doing this. And then I go by to get a car, and she does this. And I was tempted. I didn't do it. But I was tempted to push my car and go, boo. <laughs> I thought you know, she might have a stroke or a heart attack. That would not be good. All right? But we live in a time where if people really do, I mean, they freak out about things. And, and what there's this, been this kind of an unwritten desire, I guess you would say, that people have where we want zero risk. Just so you know, that doesn't exist. There's no such thing as zero risk. When you got in your car and drove here tonight, you were taking a risk. You were put, you were, your life was, in a sense, you're trusting everyone else to follow the laws of the road, not just you. You're trusting that to happen. All right? If you think about it, all the food that we eat, you're trusting that people aren't just taking shortcuts and putting garbage in that stuff. Because right? that does happen. Not very often here. When I went to South Africa and went to the open market, I had a weird thought. Am I glad for the thousands of food laws we have? Because there was none there. You know, they cut the meat up from the, from the bowl to sell in the open market, and there's just flies everywhere. And uh, this is how the guy takes care of the flies. <laughs> and then he'll walk and do something, and of course, you know, they'll come back and go, like that. Uh, you know, I don't know what they're doing. They're laying eggs and stuff in your, your meat. You know, you don't get anything there medium rare. You get it well done. But, um, I mean, it was just unbelievable. There's like no refrigeration. And all that stuff would be illegal in this country. So now, that's not a bad thing. This is a good thing. But because of what we have, you know, that's a, safety is a huge concern. And so there are, there's been people who said, well, uh, they've done the survey. Um, and there's a lot of parents, Christian parents, who really uh, are behind and support foreign missions. And that same group was asked some questions similar about six months later. And that is if your son or daughter came to you and said that they believe God wanted to go to, and they listed some countries as a missionary, you know, would you support them? Well, it wasn't quite the same percentage. It's like, well... You know, there, there's some safety concerns, and you know, which there are in some countries more than others. And it was a completely different, like, there was not this, oh, yeah, I'm all for missions. It was like, well, um, I, I don't know about that, you know, kind of thing. So Paul is not living his life that way. Remember that Jesus already told us the world's going to hate us. As a group, we have been spoiled for a long time by living in a country that is where the majority have been either Christians or influenced by Christianity, and that's changing, all right? And we're no longer, I guess you would say, the group in power. Uh, we still have a voice to a degree, and that's lessening. And so pretty soon we will be in the same situation that a lot of Christians find themselves in in other countries, where you don't have rights, or you have very few rights. Uh, and that's gonna be very hard to get used to, especially for the generation that's in the transition because we're used to having them. Um, and we, we do hold them very dear. I know I do. You know, our freedoms are, it's a big deal. So anyway, so now we get to where Paul is going to, he wants to motivate them. What I think is interesting is that back in 
uh, well, it probably goes back even to the 1800s, but in the 1940s, 1950s, maybe even, maybe, maybe even as far back as the 30s, <clears throat> when it came to coaches in different sports trying to motivate uh, their uh, athletes to work hard, to train hard, and I, and I think a lot of that started really more that in the 50s because we took training to a whole new level starting at that point and it's really increased leaps and bounds. The way that we motivate guys to, or women to push themselves beyond certain limits and that type of thing. A lot of that comes actually from biblical thinking is where it comes from. The idea of not focusing on the past, putting things behind you, forcing yourself to go forward, ignoring circumstances which in athletics would be ignoring pain, ignoring failure, you know, pushing, pushing, pushing. A lot of that comes from a biblical mindset, and a lot of it, I think, comes from this passage we're going to get into beginning now in verse 13. So Paul, again, talking about himself, says, Not that I have already obtained this, or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. So he wants him to understand his motivation to press on towards attaining the knowledge of Christ and living for Christ, regardless of his circumstances. He says, I've not already, I don't have it. I've, I've not obtained it. But I'm not quitting. I'm not giving up. I'm going forward. The idea is, is that falling short each and every day or not getting there yet is of no, um, it's not a thing. He's pressing on. And that is his, in fact, he has a single-minded devotion to this. So when we talk about having a single-minded devotion, number one, again, make sure that we don't allow ourselves to become either dissuaded of this because of an exaggeration. The exaggeration is this. Well, if you have a singular-minded devotion to Christ, then that means you can't pursue hobbies. You can't pursue... No, it doesn't mean that. It doesn't mean any of that. You can have a single-minded devotion to many different things. You still have a full life. We still have all the responsibilities that God wants us to live. Uh, but there's a priority, and it's the way we prioritize things. We arrange our life around what it is we prioritize. So, simple example, a lot of athletes do this. I did it on a small level, but when I was in high school, my senior year, I wanted to play college football, and I was, I was skinny. I was average-sized kid back then. This, you know, that's like there were still a few dinosaurs left. Um, but I wasn't like, particularly huge. So I knew that I had to be bigger. I had to be. So my life then took on a certain order, right? Number one was the amount of food that I ate, right? So, you know, some people today, when they want to lose weight, they have six small meals a day. I had six large meals a day. Um, I would eat 18 eggs a day, uh, 12 eggs in the morning, and then six eggs at night. I mean, through all that, I started working out twice a day, every day, seven days a week. So my whole life, so now I still went to church, still went to school. Still read books, still, you know, still did all kind of stuff. But that my life was rearranged around that priority. So when we talk about having this singular uh, devotion to Christ, right, the evil one wants to make that sound negative. He wants to make it sound like all you can do is go to church. That is not true. You know, if you're not reading your Bible, well, you should be reading your Bible. You should be reading it every day. That's a good habit to have. All right? But... It, it doesn't mean that you are not allowed to do anything else. It's just a part, obviously a very important part of your life. So Paul has this single-minded devotion. Every decision he makes is, is 
in line with what he's committed to. So, you know, when I was doing this, a lot, again, a lot of athletes do this. Every decision you make is in line with that. Your decision when you eat, when you sleep, how much you sleep, what you're going to eat, what you're not going to eat. Every decision you make is in line with what your priorities are. Um, when it comes to even to entertainment, are you going to go to the movies? Uh, I can't do that because I have to be in bed by a certain time. I've got to get a certain amount of rest. Am I going to do this? Well, I can if they go earlier because I have to be home at a certain time because I have to have a protein drink and, you know, i got to put six eggs in it and that makes me kind of feel like I don't want to do much after that. So, you know, you make all these decisions that you have to do. So same thing when it comes to the single-minded devotion to Christ. So I don't want anyone to, to somehow think of that as being a negative or some kind of a... Uh, mystical, like you're floating on clouds. All It's not that either. It's a very down-to-earth, day-by-day existence. I live in obedience to what the Word of God says, and I make my priorities. I make my moral decisions based on what the Scripture says. Uh, I make my uh, financial decisions based on what the Bible says. At least Now, when I say that, we want to do that. Sometimes we're kind of inconsistent, all right? We sin, but, but that's the goal. I want my moral decisions to be made based on the scripture, financial decisions, my, all my personal decisions, all of my social decisions are based on that. Um, and so that's what he's getting at here. And so he has a single-minded devotion. So again, he says, I've not already obtained it, nor am I already perfect or complete, but I press on. So the stress that I press on is that there's a single-minded devotion where he is, in one sense, leaving no stone unturned. Right? So this would be some people might call this a person being a zealot, right? They're overly zealous. To him, it's just normal living, right? Now, in fact, Paul, now his personality was this way. He was, when he was a Pharisee, he was part of a group that would have been known as trailblazers. Right? So this group, these guys were like the Pharisees of the Pharisees. Right? That's the group he's in. They, you know, when you hear me talk about the Mishnah or the tradition of the elders and those things, so Paul is part of the group that writes that stuff. So they have these fence laws around the law of Moses, and the idea is to prevent you from breaking the law of Moses, we're going to have all these other laws. So if you break them, that's really bad. But it's good because it should stop you in your tracks and prevents you from breaking the law of Moses. So now remember that by the time Jesus comes on the scene, the fence laws, which are not the law of Moses, have been elevated in status to basically almost being equal to the law of Moses. And then we had all kinds of problems. You know, there was a lot of legalism there. But Paul is the zealot, uh, and he's the leader of the zealots. That's why then when they wanted to um, go after Christians and start imprisoning them, uh, the way that it reads, it sounds like it was kind of Paul's idea. It was his idea, and he's volunteering to head it up, and they said, go. You know, they're like, this guy's nuts. Let him do it. All right? If anyone's going to do it, Paul's going to do it. So that was, that was the deal. So, so Paul is already very disciplined in that way. But this discipline he has to where Christ is first, then it's not something that's limited only to people who have a certain personality trait. It's how all of us are to be as believers, because this is the most important thing. In the same way that you, know, you should be devoted in your marriage, you should be devoted to your husband or your wife. Right? That's, that would be normal, to be devoted to them. You, don't, you, know, you never think you should, never think in terms of just yourself. You always think in terms of we. The moment you get married, everything is now we. All right? that, that's, just, that's normal. That's the way that it's supposed to be. And there's a commitment to the well-being of the other person, no matter what. Now, obviously, we do that imperfectly, and we still have our struggles even in just getting along. Um, but again, that's, their devotion is there. And then as we have kids, 
We're devoted to them, period. We're devoted to their education. We're devoted to their development. We're devoted to their safety. We're devoted to their health. All that stuff, we're devoted to that. We spend money on that. We do so willingly. Um, whatever is required because we love them and care for them and we want them you know, to receive all the advantages that we think is necessary for them to be successful in life. So this, this pressing on that Paul is talking about is, again, this single-minded devotion. So then he says this. He says, brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. So this forgetting what lies behind, remember that technically Paul is guilty of sanctioning the death of Stephen. Stephen was the first Christian martyr. Paul was the one who sanctioned that. He approved of that. Because of Paul, they killed him. If Paul wasn't there, that might not have happened. There might have been a riot. They might have thrown rocks at him just to get rid of, get rid of Stephen. They were mad at him. But to kill him, that was because Paul was there. And he, he because of his presence and him condoning what they were doing, it was rapidly organized and they carried out and Stephen was, was basically put to death. All right, so Paul, and then also Paul's the one responsible for many families being torn apart where mom or dad or both are arrested because they're following Christ. Remember, he was convinced that they were blaspheming God. So Paul has got all this history and he's not walking around feeling guilty. And he's not saying, well, I've done so much against the cause of Christ, I feel compelled to be. He's, that is not his motivation. His motivation is not making up for his past. And so, and we need to remember, God never asked you to do that. God has never asked you and I to make up for our past, because you can't. All right? we, none of us can make up for our past sins. It's, a, it's not possible. We are able, because of forgiveness, because that is what forgiveness is, he is releasing us from, from the penalty we have to pay because Christ has paid it. So that's not hanging over my head. So I don't have to get up every morning saying, oh, what do you mean? I mean yeah, I've got to do this. If you knew my past, you knew the things I did wrong, you would know why I'm doing this for the Lord. No, that's wrong motivation. His motivation is on the positive side because he knows that Christ obviously has done a lot for him. He knows that because Christ loves him. He loves Christ. He is uh, committed out of a love for Christ. He wants to do this. Christ continues to be a great benefactor to him. So this very, obviously, positive relationship he has is what's driving him forward. So it's not because he's trying to make up for the past. So sometimes there are some Christians who don't always have as much joy in their walk with the Lord because they're motivated by the wrong thing. They're motivated by guilt or they're motivated by trying to make up for the past. As if God had said, yeah, well, because of the things that you have done, you have more to do than so-and-so. So you get less sleep, you keep less of your money. That doesn't happen. It's, it's an amazing thing. But nonetheless, with that, that doesn't mean that we have a lessened commitment to Christ. So Paul here then says, <coughs> forgetting what's behind, he wants there to be no distractions. Nothing needs to distract him. And mental distractions are a big deal. Um, and that's why our mindset and our attitude, and again, why we read the scripture and we want to understand these things is so important. When you get to the upper echelon of athletics, 
whether it's team sport or individual sport. That's why a lot of these teams and individuals hire sports psychologists. They hire that because they're at the upper echelon of athletes and what they're trying to get to as far as the next level is such a fine line. Right, remember that if, if a man is the fastest man in the world and he runs a, I don't even know what the record is anymore, let's say it's a 9.4 uh, 100 meters, okay? So this guy trains every day because he wants to get his time to 9.39. One and that requires focus. That requires a strict diet, strict training. You, you can't miss because there's a bunch of other guys who run just as fast as you. And not only then do you have to have clear focus, but on the day of the race, you, you cannot be distracted or you will not because what's required of your body to perform at the peak highest level is insane. So that's why a lot of times coaches get so upset because they're, they're players, male or female, they have a boyfriend or girlfriend. They just, they can't stand that because that could disrupt the athlete in a moment. Imagine the guy shows up for a race and it's the Olympics and his girlfriend just broke up with him. He's not winning. You know, what do you say? He's not winning. No matter what he does, unless he has some incredible discipline in his mind, he is not winning that race because he is distracted. Uh, that's why a lot of times they, they want to sequester them away from family, away from people, only with the team, only with other athletes. It's the reason why that's done is because that's so fragile. Um, I was listening to a, a, a book today dealing with um, strength training and world's strongest man kind of stuff. And so there's this guy. He's one of the world's strongest men. And at, and at this particular time, just a couple of years ago, uh, there's a record for the deadlift where basically you grab a bar with a bunch of weights and you stand up with it, stand up straight. And the world record was like 1,100 pounds, which is a lot of weight, by the way. Um, uh, if I was to try to do that, the bar would not even budge. Uh, it just it doesn't move. So anyway, so he, so he had been training, and, and I think he had figured out that he, was, he wanted to pull 1,152 pounds. So no matter how strong you are, they want to get to a point, because they, they understand how strength works, there's a point that's called hysterical strength. Now, what they mean, what that means by that is you've heard stories where, like, there was this one girl, she was a high school basketball player, her dad was in a car wreck, and she, it was, I don't know if it was in a small town, but anyway, she ran over there, and she was able to lift the car off of her dad. Now, she's unable to do that. She doesn't have the strength for that. But that moment, she was able to, to recruit 100% of everything in her body. It's very hard to do 100% of anything, 100%. Now, what you may not know is, after that feat, number one, she was in bed for two weeks. Her body was completely wiped out. Number two, she was a star basketball player, never played basketball again. She couldn't. Her body could not respond. It was so depleted from this one event, which is insane. So this guy, his name is Eddie Hall, wanted to find out how do I get to that? Because I'm going to need that to pull this weight to make this world record. And so he, you know, they go through all this stuff, and I won't get into all the details of what, what he did. But he was able to do it. So the day that it came, he got up to the thing. He went through all the stuff he was supposed to go through. He pulled the weight. When he put the weight down, um, he began to stumble. And he, he collapsed, uh, hit his head. 
There was already blood coming out of his nose and his ears and his mouth from all of the exertion. Um, it took him, even though he's this very well-trained strength athlete, two weeks to recover. Now, he's fine now. It wasn't like the girl where, you know, she never played basketball again. You know, he trained for this stuff, and so the, the body and the central nervous system is a little different uh, because of what he, the way he trains. But he was able to get to that, to that moment where he got pretty, if, if he, whether he got to it or not, he got pretty close to that 100% exertion. I mean, that's just unbelievable. So there could be zero distractions to be able to, to accomplish this kind of thing. So the idea here, I think, and I was thinking about this as I was you know, thinking about that book and what I'm studying here and thinking about this, is that this is the kind of commitment that the Lord wants from us. Obviously, he doesn't want you to do something where your nose is bleeding and you got blood coming out of your eyes. But the idea is, is that, that we recognize how important this is. I mean, if pulling 1,100 pounds is, I mean, it's a world record. That, 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 is, that is impressive, just so you know. I mean, it, that's insane. You know, he's also the kind of guy that sits down with a rope that's attached to a jet plane and he moves the plane, you know, by just pulling on it. It's just crazy, all right? But the idea is, is that, so the most important thing in our life is Christ. And to me, it makes every excuse I have to not go to church, to not read my Bible, to not pray, to not fellowship with believers as lame as can be. It's just lame. What excuse? Because it ends up being an excuse. What excuse do I have? I have zero excuse. And if I had a coach right next to me, he'd say, what's your excuse, son? Oh, you, you feel a little tired today? Huh? Is that what's going on? Because what, they, what, they, what you train to do when you're training for athletics, you know, when, you, when you have to get up for an early morning training session, there's, there's something that you never ask yourself. You never do it. When the alarm goes off, you never ask or think about how you feel. Because it doesn't matter. You just get up, turn off the alarm, and go about your business. The moment you start thinking about whether or not you want to train, or you start thinking about I would like to sleep a little few more minutes, most of the time, oops, excuse me, I'm not trying to spray, guess what's going to happen, right? We know that. So there's, sometimes there's way too much thinking. So when it comes to like reading the Bible, and people say stuff like, I just don't feel like reading. Well, you're a human being. What does that matter? We have, some people have this weird idea that, well, but if I don't feel like reading the Bible, God knows that, and it doesn't count. Uh, you're not reading the Bible to impress God. So it doesn't count anyway. It's for you. It's for your benefit. Right? God's not in heaven going, whoa. Nudge the angels. You see Ron? He's reading my Bible today, and he doesn't even feel like it. It's not going to do him any good. No, it's not happening. So... This, this idea, then, of what it means to be committed to Christ. Now, I will tell you that in some countries, maybe in many, especially where there's, where there's persecution, they don't have that issue. You know, when it comes to reading the Bible, fellowship with the believers, they don't have that issue. No matter what people show up, they do it. They're committed because they know what's at stake. There's, there's none of this, I don't feel like it today. It just doesn't happen. All right? I've seen too many photographs of people huddled in a small attic on a Sunday morning, because that's where they have to meet in hiding to, uh, to read the Bible and sing hymns. I've seen the hymns, I've seen the hymns, I've seen the pictures of people meeting in the forest where it's freezing, 
All right? But they're pretty convinced that the guards don't want to come looking for them or the police looking for them because it's, you know, minus 20. And so they purposely decide to meet in the middle of the, um, in the, middle of the forest with no fire where they can not be bothered by or molested by the police and they can sing hymns and read the Bible and pray together. All right? And, they, and, what, and what I've always astounded me when you study the pictures is look at their faces. Everybody's smiling. It's nuts. They're all just like, there's this joy. It's crazy. You ought to see what I see on Sunday morning when I look at on the, you know. Some, some people are smiling, right? Some don't want to be here. <laughs> at least that's what it looks like, all right? So, we want, so one of the things that I think that we need to do as we read through this kind of thing is to ask ourselves, you know, where's my commitment? Because again, and you know, I don't believe in doing this, I don't believe in using Christ as an example of commitment to try to get us to break a world record in lifting to me that's, it's not blasphemy, but it sounds that way. You know, I've even seen t-shirts where uh, there's a, there, there's a, it's a drawing of Jesus and he's on the ground, the cross is on his back and then someone has put the words, um, you think you train hard, try to bench press this. Okay, that's cute, but I don't like that. I would never wear that shirt. To me, that's, to me, that's making light of what he's done. It's not about, I don't think about Jesus on the cross so I can bench press more weight. That's just really lame, okay? At the same time, we do need to remember, though, that Christ was committed to doing the will of the Father, period. And nothing was going to stop him. Nothing. It was, it was going to be done. So, yes, Christ was committed to us, and he is our example. We are to imitate him. Uh, but here, I think Paul is really trying to draw out this idea of, of, of a high level of commitment uh, to Christ, understanding what's required and what it is that we are actually capable of doing as human beings. God has created us, created your mind and your body. Uh, he's created the way that the whole system, your internal system works, that we are able to do this. Now, we're able to do this more, more maybe more readily more easily in the power of Christ. But even in the beginning when we do this, we're not, we're not always thinking, is Christ enabling me? We, we, have to do, we have to do these things when we're not used to doing it. We have to, we have to break the bad habits that we had before. Um, you know, I've talked to people who say they, they just don't have time to read the Bible, and they've given me their schedule. And when I look at the schedule, there is no time on there. So I go, I just found you 30 minutes. They go, really, where? I go, it's right here. You don't get up to 5.30. Get up at five. You got, there's the 30 minutes. I mean, that's, it's there. So the, the idea is that we have the ability to do that. God has given us that. We can discipline our bodies um, to not be lazy. You know, I know there's, when it comes to sleep, some people need nine hours, some need eight, some need seven. I don't know of anybody who needs 12 unless you're sick. All right, so and we, need to, we, should, we should regiment our life to, to some degree. I believe that we should. God, we have, God has given all of us 24 hours in a day. He expects all of us to manage all our responsibilities, which includes our responsibilities to the Lord within that time frame. And we need to figure that out. And there's ways to do that. And one of the ways that we do that is by eliminating those things that aren't helpful. So, is it a sin to watch TV? No. You watch them four hours a day? Well, what are you leaving undone? Because normally you are. So 
Entertainment is not sinful, but it's not to be a staple of your life. Okay? Yes, Mr. Ron. That joy you're talking about is the fruit of the Spirit. And uh, Jesus despised the shame, but he did it for the joy that was mm -hmm. set before him. Absolutely. Talking about feelings. Yep. I think that when, you, when it comes to joy and peace that God gives us, I, to, help me, uh, to help me understand that, I normally associate that with a very um, a comforting sense of contentment. Contentment's really important to be content with what you have and where you are. Um, I was reading an article the other day. It said that every year, I think it's just in America, every year between four and 5,000 pastors resign, which is an insane number when you think about it. So the article was getting to all these reasons why uh, it was going on. I'm, I'm sure some of it's, I mean, I'm not, I don't think the guy was lying, but, but I kept thinking about that. Um, and I think that there's some, there's a part of that that the author did not consider. And that is, I wonder how many of those guys, the problems that they're having that lead them to resign is fueled by a lack of contentment. They want a bigger church, or they want more of this, or they want more of that, or whatever it happens to be. We're very influenced by the world and by our culture. You know, there's, there's, like, there's, there's people who will, who will tell you, well, you know, tell, tell a pastor or a church, well, if, if you had no baptisms last year, your church is dying. Not necessarily. That's not true. And you certainly wouldn't say that to a guy who was uh, trying to grow a church in Afghanistan. Because there when you get baptized, you might be killed. So uh, you know, the numbers can help us evaluate things, but they can never be the final or even the, the major reason why we do or don't do anything. This can't be. We need to be content. Um, and so uh, I just, my, my, my thoughts go to that. So like if their ego wasn't being fed, if they weren't feeling enough accolades from others, who are we dependent upon? Are we dependent upon, upon the accolades of men or of the Lord? And that doesn't mean that we shouldn't encourage each other. All those things should happen. But, you know, people fail us all the time. And sometimes we may go through periods of time, maybe long periods of time, where there's, it's, it's rough going. It's rough sledding. Remember, everybody, we're all born with a sin nature. You know, we're dealing with sinful people, and we're sinful people. I mean, it's, you know, that's just not an easy job in that sense. And so if we're looking for all these in the way that the world does, it's going to lead to a lack of contentment, which is going to fuel maybe uh, a refusal to forgive, or you can slip into feeling sorry. There's a lot of things in that arena that you can uh, slip into. So it just really bothered me that that wasn't delved into. And I'm not like trying to rain on people's parade and say that all these pastors are resigned, they all have a sin problem, because they all don't. They all don't. Some do, and some aren't living the life that God's called us to live. You know, what, what, I, what I preach on, it's for me too. Right? It can never be this idea that I'm just teaching you and I hope you get it. That's for me too. And so sometimes, just give you a little secret. So when you hear me hounding on certain things, you can figure out what I'm struggling with. Because <laughs> I know how I need to be talked to. You know, so you know, I mean, I'm, I can be really harsh. You know, I know I need to lose weight. And so I call myself names. I open the fridge and I say to myself, sometimes in the brain, 
So what do you want now, fatty? I do, I think that. You stinking little pig, you want more ice cream? I mean, that's just what I do. I mean, because I know I need that. And it's because it's true. And even then, sometimes I'll answer. Yes, this little pig does want more ice cream. Boom, you know, whatever, which is not a good thing. But the thing is, is that, you know, this, what, what the Lord wants from us, it's not easy. To be a Christian and to live as a Christian goes against the grain of everything in our culture and it goes against the grain of your nature. It's against our nature. Now, the Lord changes that and the more that changes, many of these things become easier, but it never means that the struggle is completely over. Not until the Lord completely delivers us from sin, where there is no longer any sin around and we're basically confirmed in our righteousness. When that happens, then the struggle's over. Until then, the struggle's there. So one more thing about all this, and this is important, because when it comes to the Christian life, some people think that it is unmotivating. That's a way to put it. I don't want to say dismotivating. But anyway, the idea is, is that people think it's, it's a, a sense of hopelessness if you can never attain it. We can never get it in this life. People say, well, that's just hopeless. Okay, time out. Let's just think about that for a minute. Okay? So let's say that you decide that you want to get stronger, which is a good thing. I don't mean like a power lifter to set world records, but you want to get stronger. Right, do you know the path to getting stronger? It's failure. You lift a certain amount of weight. You want to find out how strong you are, and so you get to the point to where you get to a weight you can't lift. So you just failed. Right? So then you, you train, you work, and then maybe a couple weeks later, you try that again. And, and maybe you fail. You failed again. You keep working. You keep trying hard. You, you maybe change your diet a little bit. Two more weeks go by. You try. Oh, you made it. Well, well what's next? Well, that's be another goal. Do you have another goal? Whatever that happens to be. And you start trying to get it. And so let's, let's say you, you, you're starting to feel good. You feel strong. And so you know, you've, you've pushed the weight up. And so the next week you try it again and you fail. At this constant failure. But what happens is we continue to set new goals, continue to work hard, it's motivating, and as we achieve these things, we keep moving forward. In your Christian life, there are sins you and I have overcome. It's not a sin to say that. That's not bragging. The, the credit goes to the Lord. We want to overcome certain sins. There's some sins, it's, it's going to be tough. It's always going to be there. There's maybe an inherent weakness or what have you. But we keep working at it, we keep training. All right? We don't give up. We don't quit. Uh, and, that's, and that's the idea for the Christian. Um, and so religion or spirituality is not to be this easy walk in the park because it requires everything of you for it because of the great value it has and because of what the Lord gives us. This complete transformation. Imagine being an individual where you wake up and every single morning you are truly at peace and content where there are, you, you feel no burden. You, you feel a burden in a sense because of those you love that don't know the Lord. It's a special kind of burden. But your life is free from the tyranny of having to get certain things done at a certain time because you're trying to, to, to do this or do that or, or look a certain way or, or be more attractive to people or have more. You're free from all of that. Man, that's a great life. And all of us as believers can possess that. We don't have to be identified by
by what we do. We don't have to be identified by what we can accomplish. We don't have to be identified by that way. We can be identified as simply, goes back to our families, right? When it comes to my children, my grandchildren, I love all of them. I do not love them because of what they do. I don't love them because of how smart they are. I don't. I just love them because of who they are. And thank goodness they love me that way. They don't love me and say, and then when I get old and I'm in a wheelchair, they don't say, well, I mean, yeah, I mean, I mean Papa's in a wheelchair. He can't do nothing now. That's not, how, that's not how kids approach life. They don't care about that. So the idea there in this relationship we have with the Lord and with each other really is one that, that is very freeing and very fulfilling in, in a fantastic way. One that everybody really wants. The world is jealous for that. They want that desperately. You want, you know, if you go through social media, you see all these clips that people with their feel-good clips. Why do people have those things? They have those things because it moves our heart, because we recognize these things as being important. And, and, and so it touches our, our, you know, our heartstrings, or however you want to say it. I forget, there was some guy used to use, use the phrase, you know, it touches your heart of hearts. Well, whatever. All right, but the thing is, is that God wants us to possess those things because we know who we are in Christ. And it's, it's a... It's a great thing that he has for us. So this level of commitment here that Paul's talking about and, and, and truly being able to set aside those things that would distract us and putting aside and forgetting the failures. You know, I, even when it comes to past sins, learn the lessons you're supposed to learn from your past sins and then forget about them. That's it. You don't have to keep dwelling on it. Just learn what you got to learn and move forward. You don't have to bring it up again. Right? I've mentioned to you before that there's some, some women have a very difficult time if they've had an abortion in the past. It's very hard for them because as you know, if you're growing as a Christian, you understand that no matter how you put it, that's murder. You've, you've murdered a kid. There's no way that you can't get around that. You, you can't put the responsibility on anybody else. And sometimes what happens is after they've been saved for a while and the Lord continues to soften the heart, they begin to feel uh, some guilt for that, which is not a bad thing. It can be a good thing. But then what they have a hard time with is, once again, recognizing the forgiveness that comes from Christ. And so there's this guilt, or maybe, you know, well, how can I make up for that? Or there's, well, there's no way God can love me now. Like somehow God didn't know, you know. It's just that we are coming to this realization. And so whatever lessons we need to learn from that, or that she needs to learn from that, you learn from that, and then you move forward. Moving forward does not mean that you're thinking that's not a thing. It doesn't mean that you're minimizing in any way. But you don't have to dwell on it. Christ was literally punished for your sin. There is no more punishment for that. The wrath of God was fully satisfied by what Christ did on the cross. That is an incredible gift. So if you are, the, so if you are in some way responsible, whether it's through abortion or whether it's through neglect or whatever it is, where someone suffered greatly or someone died, Yes, that is horrendous. And there's probably a pretty good chance there is nothing you can do to fix it. Without forgiveness, you don't, how do you make it? How, how do you move on in life? You're, you're trapped by that forever. That, that's a burden that will never go away until we understand the incredible grace of God. And then, of course, what it comes full circle then, if we fully embrace that and accept that, we then also then should be infused with the love of Christ 
and we are able to forgive others for what they've done to us. Remember, that's the story that Jesus told about the one guy who was basically forgiven of this incredible financial debt where he, in one sense, owed a million dollars, could never repay, never. And the one who he owed the money to had the right to throw him in the prison for the rest of his life. He had the right to do that, and he forgave him. And then this guy who was forgiven goes out, and what does he do? He finds somebody who owes him a buck twenty-five, and basically grabs him by the throat and says, you know what, you're going to prison until you pay me. And somebody goes back and tells the, 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 the master, you know that guy you forgave for a million bucks? Yeah. Yeah, well, he found a guy who was a buck 25, and this is what he did. And then that guy was, he flipped out. He was angry. Like, how, how ungrateful can you be? Well, there, the, the disparity between this thing is, is just, the contrast is so great. He, he said, okay, that's it. You're going to prison until you pay me what you owe me. All right, so it becomes full circle then so that we then are able to forgive others for what they do to us. And it's, it's not, you may be surprised, maybe you won't be, that there are many individuals who may have been forgiven by others, maybe not the Lord, but by others from some grievous thing, yet there's others who've done small things and they won't let it go. They won't let it go, and they feel justified. So for the believer, if you're a Christian, we, we have to examine ourselves to see where, where are we on that scale. And, and if, we're not, if we're not committed to Christ to where we're able to, to live out the scriptures and obey God in that area, then you, you can't claim that you're committed to Christ. You know, you're holding back, and there's no good reason for us to do that. So just some things to think about. We will, we will work our way all the way through verse 16 next week, uh, I promise. Um, but uh, the forgetting aspect here is really important. I think I have uh, in your notes uh, uh, some things about that. Uh, where again the word for I'll just read this and then we'll, we'll pray it says the word forgetting in this passage means no longer caring for neglecting refusing to focus on our memories store millions of pieces of information gained through our senses since birth some experiences are impossible to forget and any effort to forget them only makes them more prominent Paul is not advising a memory wipe he is telling us to focus on the present and the future rather than the past and so that's what, he, that's what we're able to do. God enables us to do that, and we can do that with his help. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are grateful for your goodness, your grace, your kindness. We thank you, Father, again for the incredible gift of forgiveness. We thank you, Father, for the words of advice that Paul gives us, how we can press forward, how we are to press forward. And I pray, Father, you help each one of us to recognize that, that uh, we that we can no longer be lazy or we shouldn't be lazy spiritually. Uh, that, Father, this is well worth our time and our effort and our energy and our commitment. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to come to understand what it is that you are looking for from us and that you are not asking us for anything that's unusual. You're not asking us for something that we can't even do because we can do these things most definitely through Christ who enables us. So, Father, I ask that you would help us to Truly enjoy and relish the forgiveness that you give us, that you've granted us, the new life you've given us, the guaranteed future that we have, that, Father, we may then focus on the present and the future and live accordingly. Thank you, Father, again, for being so good to us. We thank you. We do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.